0: This is really a great Father's Day to celebrate the dads uh, and the legacy you're building, moms and dads, by being at Gull Lake. I can't imagine a better place to be building and supporting the legacy that God's put on your heart for your family than to be here. It really is special. And it's actually a special weekend for me. Uh, yesterday, uh, my, I lost my dad 16 years ago, but yesterday was his 100th birthday. On June 19th. And I, a lot of the stuff that I'm going to tell you this week was really uh, just to the moms and dads here. The stuff that happened to me as a kid happened because of my mom and dad had a vision for Jesus and for the world. And everything that I do was shaped by that. And so I want to say to the young people here uh, for this talk, I'm really not talking to the parents, I'm talking to the young people because uh, I don't get them the rest of the week. And this will be my favorite. I don't care about you, old people, but I love these young people. So, but it really is an honor to be with you. And I want to start by you thinking about this question. And I'd love for you to, uh, a couple of you take a screenshot. And uh, this, is, this is just one of those great conversation builders to do with friends and to do with kids to say, can you think back to the times when you saw something, like you encountered something in your life? And you knew that by seeing that, your life was never going to be the same. And here's what's going to happen when you start talking about this question. All of these ideas are going to start popping into your mind. I mean, all these memories, all these events, and some of them are going to be really, really hard. Some of them are going to be really beautiful. Some of them are going to be in between. But these were the moments where you knew God was trying to get your attention. So I'll give you an example. In 1968, my mom and dad uprooted my sister and I, and we went to to Kenya, where my dad took over a mission hospital in the Aberdare Mountains of uh, central Kenya, um, running a mission hospital for a year. And it was an unbelievable year. People, my dad left his medical practice, people said he was crazy. The only reason we went, honestly, because it was my mom, like uh, a few months before that, they had, had been having a dinner and our life was 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 one of those perfect families, country club. Uh, My uh, brother, my second brother was a senior in high school. He was a high school All-American in football and baseball. I remember, for those of you that are older, I remember three birthdays in a row, my brother got a handwritten birthday card from Paul Bear Bryant. How cool is that? (laughs) Roll Tide. And so that's how good an athlete he was. And my parents. Forsook his senior year. They never saw him play, uh, because God had called them to take the two of their youngest five kids, and for us to go to Africa. But on this particular night, one of the first, one of the memories I have of something that changed my life forever. I was 12 years old. Uh, On it was a Christmas party, 1968. Is there a 12 year old? Anybody 12 year old in the room? Anybody who's 12? Right here, Manny. Manny, right? No, what's your name? What? Your name's Graham? Can you come up with me just for a second? I'm not going to kill you, at least not yet. No, not till the end of the story. So, so I'm 12 years old and I am literally probably not this tall, probably about this tall, but about this lean, good shape, great athlete, right? No. (laughs) And, um, the mission station had a school, Rift Valley Academy, and we were having a Christmas party. It was a few days before Christmas, and my parents were up cleaning up. My sister was still up visiting, and I was more the introvert of the family. So I asked them if I could walk home, and I'd done it a lot. I'd walked home in the dark to our house plenty of times while my parents and sister were up at the up at the school. So I'm walking down this. I mean, it's dark like you can't see a thing down this this pathway. And uh there were a lot of wild animals all over the place. And when I got to the when I got to the backyard, uh Bill Barnett was the doctor that we had taken this place and they had a Siamese cat named Tingling. And I hated that cat because we when you'd walk down the we lived in this little 800 square foot cement block house, but when you walk down the hallway to the kitchen, past the bathroom, Ting, Ting would jump out of the in the dark, into the dark hall and latch onto you with her claws? Hated her. Still don't like cats, I'm sorry. But she was at the, she, she was at the back door and the, the key to the front door was always under the mat of the back door. Okay? So I'd reach down that and then I'd walk around to the front of the house and go in the front door because there was always, you know, the door was always locked when we were there. Well, Ting sitting there looking at me like, just looking crazy, like wild, out, eyes wild. And all of a sudden, it tears past me, runs right up into this thorn tree. I'm like, that's weird. You know, it's crazy. So I reach down, get the key, and I start to walk around to the front front of the house. I get to the front of the house. Tell me your name right here. Peyton. Peyton Manning. Right there. Call him QB. From about 12 feet distance, is a 200-pound leopard. And it's staring. It's facing me. It's staring at me, and uh, I'd be like a marshmallow. Like a marshmallow would be to you. That's what we would bend to that leopard. And so the leopard wasn't moving. The leopard's just sitting there, and the only thing it's moving is its tail. Its tail is just literally moving this fast. It, it was just completely motionless, except for that tail. It looked like tail was so long. After about two hours, well, maybe 10 seconds, it took three steps away, and then it turned back. Like just. Looked at me, okay? And then it took three more steps. It turned back, looked at me again. And the whole time I knew, I knew because we had, back in those days, if you wanted uh, all the meat we got, we got by hunting because there was no other way of getting it. So we did, well, it, was, it was like wild, wild west. It's pretty cool. And so, but, but it's the first time I'd ever been face-to-face to a leopard and last time. And eventually it disappeared into the dark. I had the key in my hand. I'd stood. I knew that to run would be the worst thing. If I ran, I'd be tempted to run and just tackle me from behind, but be real easy. I jumped in, unlocked, got, it, got, into the, got into the house. I slammed the door shut. I got, got a door and I jammed, it. I jammed the door up under the knob, thinking that the leopard's gonna come knock on the door and try to get in the front door. Okay, and it was then that I noticed that I had wet my pants. Okay, thank you. You're, you're, thanks for telling me that story. Now, just in case some of my friends here are wondering, some of my buddies, it's the last time I wet my pants, okay? I haven't wet my pants since I was 12. So, but when you think back to those moments, those are life-changing moments, aren't they? But that's not the moment I would tell you about. The moment that I want to tell you about was the day we flew to Kenya in September of 68. Went from Memphis to New York, to London, to Cairo. In Cairo, there was a hijacking of a plane in Egypt that day, and we had to sit in our plane on the tarmac in a, a, a turned-off airplane without air conditioning, 110 degrees, with no water for eight hours on a, on a plane that was completely packed. That's how this adventure started for me. Pretty cool, huh? And so when we got to Kenya, we were exhausted. They took us to... Uh, the Thorn Tree is a very famous restaurant in Nairobi. If you ever go there, it's probably the oldest, most famous. The Thorn Tree restaurant at the Stanley Hotel. And uh, I had a hamburger and a french fries. I thought Africa's got it. I'll be cool. But it was after this that my life began. This is what I want to tell the kids about today. Kids, students, college students, There's a moment where God wants to wake us up to see the world like he sees it. And it was after that lunch of hamburger and french fries that my eyes became open to seeing for the first time. And here's what happened. We had the afternoon to walk the streets of Nairobi. And as we were walking the streets, it became instantly clear that there were hundreds and hundreds of people begging on the streets of Nairobi. Children, uh, men, women. And all of a sudden that day, I saw dozens, if not hundreds of people begging on the streets with no legs or no arms or no face because of leprosy. And I remember walking these streets and I looked at my mom and dad like in a pan. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. We're members of the Memphis Country Club. My dad's a doctor. Never wanted for anything in my whole life. Nothing but, but beauty and fun, right? Oblivious to the needs of the world. All of a sudden there's these thousands of people living in utter hopelessness. And this is where I want to talk to all of you today, but those of you that are younger, I think it's more important for you because you have more potential to act on it than those of us that are older, and this is it. I felt like God said to me that day for the first time, I don't ever remember God speaking to me before this, and I don't remember hearing his voice that day, but I felt like God said to me in that day, Steve, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this? You're going to go out to Rift Valley and go to school with all the other mission kids and forget that you saw this? What are you going to do? Do you, do you have an answer to this? Because this is what I didn't know at the time, but I want any person that's young today to know this. If there's a problem in the world, God has a solution. And you know what the solution is? The solution is you it's you there's a problem out there that God designed you uniquely young lady that you might be the only person that can respond to that problem Jesus wants to give us the gift of seeing and that's what I want to talk to you today from Matthew 25 because and by the way as i say this i just want to i want to be totally honest with you i stink at this what i'm this gift that Jesus is offering us I'm not telling you because I'm like Mr. C. I'm like Mr. Moron when it comes to this. But when you get a glimpse, you want to act on it. Because Jesus wants us to see the world. He wants us to see people. He wants us to see uh, our place in this world. And he wants us to, this is the big part. Jesus wants us to look for him. So when you go back to school this fall, you say, what's the most important thing Jesus wants you to do when you go back to school in the fall? He wants you to look for him. Might be a stranger coming into your classroom. Might be someone that has a need or somebody's hurting. Maybe a friend whose family's in trouble. He wants you to look to see where he is because nothing is any more important to Jesus than this, to see him in this world. So let's look at Matthew 25. You got your Bible? Go ahead and pull this out. I've got this on the screen as well. But the gift of seeing begins in Matthew 25. It said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left." Pretty fascinating. So I didn't know this until about 20 years ago when I was in India. Uh, At Kensington, we have 11 indigenous church planting partners that we plant churches with around the world. And one of them is in Rajamundri in Eastern India. And that was the first time that I ever saw how people lead sheep different than they lead goats. Do You have any idea? you have any idea how sheep are led versus how goats are led when, you, when you're taking care of a herd of goats? Come on, this is really important. You're going to need this information someday. Sheep are always led from the front. So if, if I'm going to get you to follow and you're sheep, I'm going to like, hey, we're going this way. And one of you will start to follow. Him, Come on. And, I've to, and the sheep will follow their shepherd. That's why Jesus said in John 10, My sheep know my name. They recognize my voice. The sheep will follow that. will follow the voice of that shepherd. But it's really interesting. Goats are really different. Anybody want to guess? If if sheep are led from the front, how are goats led? From the back. And you beat them. You whack them. I've been wanting to do that to you for a long time. You, you, you bust them from behind and you're a little and, and it takes more than one you've got to knock people and move people around that's the difference between sheep and goats and it's interesting because I didn't know that for years and years as I was reading this passage Jesus said he's going to se- separate separate the sheep and the goats and the core principle of Matthew 25 is Jesus, Jesus says the sheep are the people who follow me the goats are the people that they may follow but only only if you're prodding them and pushing them well here's the truth of it we've all got a lot of sheep in us and we've all got a lot of goat. Wouldn't you wouldn't you agree? Anybody want to be honest? You know that God has had to sometimes knock us in the head with two by four to get our attention and love? I don't think God does that to be mean, but I think sometimes He, d- he does it out of love to get our attention. That's what happened to me that day on the streets of Nairobi. So let's look at this. Let's just kind of unpack this a little bit. It says, the Son of Man is going to sit on His glorious throne. And, uh, Thinking about legacy today, hang on, I'm going to do something. I want to switch to a different image. There's my dad's gravestone. You can see June 19th, 1921. You dads out there today, that part of what you're working towards, you moms, kids, is, is to say, what is the message you want people to know from your life? Dad's was clear his whole life. Jim Rayburn, the founder of Young Life, led, led him to Christ on a retreat in 1941, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a legacy, the kind of legacy that this is why you're here. You say, why are you, you know, that's what's so fun about being at Gull Lake. I'm talking to people that everything I'm sharing with you this week, you want it. Like you want this to be true of your life. Like I want this for my kids and my grandkids. And when I, I'm bringing my six grandkids next week. And the, and, and the counselors here are going to be loving on my grandkids. Like, this means the world to me, you guys. Incredible. Because this is what Jesus is doing. But it's interesting. On the day my dad died, 16 years ago, Adrian Rogers, a very prominent Bible teacher known across the nation. He was a pastor of Bellevue Baptist in Memphis. and was good, good friends of my parents. He called up my mom that day. He said, Margie, says, when you think of Chubby, I want you to think of Chubby standing before the throne, beholding the face of Jesus. So when you think of him, like, I know you're going to grieve. I know you're going to feel sad. Oh, oh, Jay, you feel like you just walk in at any moment? Okay, that's a demerit. Oh, happy Father's Day. How are you? Let's give it up. Great to have you. It's fun to have friends in this that I can harass in this one. Great to have you, Dad. And seriously, thank you for a great legacy. You raised a phenomenal son. Incredible legacy. Anyway, Adrian said, envisioned Chubby standing before the throne. I cannot tell you how many times I've thought about that through the years. And Jesus says, someday, we're going to be gathered before that glorious throne. And part of what's going to happen is this. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Incredible. Now, this is a really important word. And I wonder in in, the last service, only three people knew this. How many of you knew that the word nations there is the word ethnos, which we get our word ethnicity from? Did any of you know that before coming in this morning? Raise your hand if you knew that. Okay, okay, four or five of you that knew that. This is an incredible point, and, and this is worth coming to Gull Lake this week for. When Jesus says all the nations are gathered together, he's not talking about USA. There's not going to be a group going, USA. There's not going to be a group going, you know, yelling for Portugal or Germany or Costa Rica or, or Korea. This is not the word we're talking about. This is the word ethnos. Of, of, of the distinct nature of tribal people groups in the world. Now, if you go, this is one of my assignments that I want to give to you this week. Please take a screenshot of this. If you, I, I would love, for, I would give my life for you to care about this. And every time, every year I come here, I throw this in at some point. You can go to the Joshua Project website, and you'll find that right now Joshua Project estimates that there are seventeen thousand. 468 distinct people group, nation groups in the world. Do you have any idea? There are at least 7,000 spoken languages in the world, maybe 10,000, depending on how you evaluate it. But here's the point where I'm talking to young people today. Like I'm talking to you three guys right there at that table right there. Of these groups, 7,419 of these groups, look at me are unreached, and there's nobody to reach them. There's nobody. Everybody's doing their thing. Some of these places are in places in the world where if you went, you'd be killed in a week at the the latest. But the question that I felt like Jesus asked me that day when I was walking the streets of Nairobi, I saw it it was more of a nation. It wasn't a distinct tribal group. But it was like Jesus is saying, and I'm saying to you today, what do you see when you see that? Do You have the gift of seeing. When I was 18 years old, anybody 18? Just see, let me see. Curious. Anybody 18? Anybody in this room 18 years old? Nobody. This must be in between. 16 to you're close. 17? When I was 18 years old, Ralph, Ralph Winter, U.S. Center for World Mission was starting to collate the people groups of the world we had no idea how many there were he says every follower of jesus every family would do a great service to christ if you picked an unreached people group to pray for you could go to the joshua project website and just start going through the list and see if a people group in the world somewhere connects to your heart and just start praying for them every day so in 1974 i started doing that for the pokot tribe in northwest kenya I lived there. I would driven through the area, but I never met a Pocot in all those years. I started praying for them in 1974 and been praying for them ever since. I'm going to finish that story at the end of this message. But Jesus is going to gather all the nations. Every one of these people groups matters to him. But here's the news that always concerns me. There's going to be separation, in a bad sense. There's one group that's going to be excluded, is excluded and it's disreputable. And in the good sense, to a point, like if you're a, a if you're a sheep, you're you're appointed for a purpose. When I was talking to you, I was talking to you as a as a sheep, right? It's saying God has a purpose for your life, like anointing, movement, something that only you could do, like you maybe there's a there's a something out there and god wants you to see it but it doesn't mean you will it doesn't mean you will you might just it might take an, it might take you another 10 years to wake up in this journey i don't know it took me a really long time but it's, so in this separation this is the separation It says the king is going to say to those on my right on his right come you who are blessed by my father Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's the part I really want you to listen to because this, this is the turning point. This was my first turning point in my life at age 12. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. You realize in the United States of America, we have by far the largest percentage of incarcerated people in the world. We have 2 million people sitting in jails right now, many of them in for-profit prisons where there's no services offered for them and where no one ever visits them. My mom is 96. She beat COVID in November with, with our family. We, I did a wedding for a nephew and it was one of those idiotic weddings, super spreader. Like 200 people, like all 200 people got COVID. So we're, that, we're those people. And I was really sick. My mom recovered. My mom is 96. I was at her house last week, hanging out with her. And she kept getting this phone call from an unregistered number. And I kept saying, mom, Don't answer it. These are all, they're preying on you as an older person. And every time I was wrong, it was Mitch calling from Alabama who's serving a life sentence for murdering a man when he was 19 years old. He's 65 now. He's my age. My mother talks to him three days a week. She's got my cousin, Rainer Twyford, who's a prominent lawyer in Birmingham, Alabama, working on his case to possibly get him parole at some point. My mom sees Mitch and answers the phone. But here's the beautiful thing. Mitch went 25 years without anybody visiting him in prison. Not one visitor for 25 years. And so here's what I want you to understand about this passage. If you're taking notes and you see this word, so you're like, what is the Greek word for hungry? I'll tell you what it is. It means your stomach is empty, and, and all you can think about is filling it with food. Thirsty is the, literally the word to say, I need a drink of water because I can't swallow. Naked means you literally have no clothes to wear. A stranger means you're a foreigner, probably from another country, and no one is welcoming you. Sick means you're physically sick. Prison, you're actually in prison. And Jesus says, thank you for visiting me in these places. I've studied these descriptions over the years. There's nothing magical or mysterious about being hungry or being in prison. There's nothing sexy about these words. They are what they appear to be, but I want to pick out one word. Again, if you're taking notes, you're thinking about this. This word xenos from the Greek is the word where we get the word foreigner or stranger. You can't read the lighter print, but it's alien. A person who is alien. What does that mean? It means someone who's completely other than you. You know who Jesus loves the most? Read the Old Testament. All of his instructions are to what? Safeguard food for the alien among you. To care for the stranger among you. This is at the heart of God. And when Jesus comes, who does Jesus interact with? He he interacts with the aliens, the strangers, the, the other than, the people on the margins. And he invites us to do the same. How many of you have heard of the word xenophobia? You know this word? This is where we get it from the Greek. This is a fear of the unknown, particularly the fear of people who are unlike us, people that are from other countries, the fear of anyone that's outside of our own social group or country. You can apply this to almost anything. Do you know what we live in today? We live in a world of xenophobia. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, one of the things that Jesus wants to do to us is eradicate this from our lives. Jesus came to drive away all fear. Like, and part of it is good. We teach our kids, hey, watch out for the stranger. That's important. But we also need to teach our kids, listen, God is preparing you to love the stranger. Because this is what I care about. This is what's in my heart. And so Jesus is saying this to these people. He says, you had the gift of seeing me. And here's the part I love. This is the part that I I don't, I still don't, I'm still amazed by this. He says this to the sheep and guess what? They're completely surprised. They're like, what are you talking about? I don't, Jesus, I don't remember seeing you anywhere. I think you're I don't know, I, you, you have the wrong people? And they say, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty, give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger or needing clothes? When did we see you sick in prison and go to visit you? This is the question. This is like one of those questions for you as a family to talk about, to say, where is God wanting to give our family the gift of seeing Because sometimes it's easy to family say, hey, we're for us. Let's build our legacy. When Jesus, look at me, God, everybody look at me right now and say, like, how about us? Like this day, we're friends. How about us? You know what? God isn't interested in that. I don't think. God is saying, the way you get to us is by getting out of us. Right? You give yourself to the world. You give it all up. You you celebrate it by giving it all away. We'll talk about that as another turning point this week. When, pote, the great Greek word simply means that what was the exact moment when we saw you? And here's the answer. Here's the, here's the million-dollar answer. I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This seems to be, to be the most powerful part of this story for me. It's their surprise. They were not expecting accolades. They weren't doing it for accolades. But Jesus is saying this, and this is what I want to hear. When I see Jesus, when I was 12 years old, this is, it was Graham, right? When I was 12 years old, and I, and I saw, had that experience, and I, and, I, and I remember about a month later I read this as I was reading through the Gospels in Africa. This is what I want Jesus to say to me. Tell me if you want it to be said to you. You want Jesus someday to look at you and go, hey, you ministered to me. You served me. You cared for me. You clothed me. It's interesting. By the way, when you look at this, Matthew 25, I didn't mention this in the last hour. This is a bonus for the 11 o'clock group because y'all are superior. Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is leading to Matthew 26, 27, and 28 when what's going to happen to Jesus? He's going to be hungry. He's going to be thirsty. He's going to be naked. He's going to be in prison, thrown into Caiaphas' dungeon. All of these things are going to happen to him, and guess what? No one's going to see him. So when I was 12 years old, I thought life was a game. I thought life was about me being, you know, just having a great life, you know? And on that day in the streets of Nairobi, Jesus was saying, okay, you going to see me? Are you going to see me? Are you just going to roll through life? Are you going to see what I care about? Do you want Jesus to someday say to you, man, You welcomed me. You came for me. You loved me. You saw me. There's no higher honor Jesus gives in all the Gospels than right here. Where he says, you did it for the least of these. You did it for me. Incredible thought. There's no wiggle room here. He's describing the actual experiences of people, actual physical conditions, actual emotional conditions, actual spiritual conditions, that are real, and Jesus is saying true worship is loving the desperate, is identified by their desperation. Who are these people? It indicates. Think about this: you got you you people that are young. You go into school, you live in your community. Who are the people in your community who can't repay you for what you might do? People who have no marketable value to you. People who are the forgotten. You know what's interesting? just think about it as a futurist of the church and the world, you you people that are under 20, you are finally going to be the first generation in the history of the West where there is going to be no cultural, financial value for being a part of the church of Jesus Christ. See, for those of us in my generation, there was a lot of values and connections. There was a lot of societal and cultural value you know of but you're you're growing up in a place where the world's going to be increasingly hostile to the uniqueness of jesus christ saying i'm the truth and the life and i'm the way and no one comes to the father except through me that this road comes through me you are the first generation in the west jesus is saying this this is the point that i want you to talk about not what we say Jesus is saying, it's not what we say. Like it's, it's, What we say is important. Saying the Apostles' Creed is a beautiful thing. I love it. I, I love saying it. I love thinking about it. It's not what we say that ultimately counts. According to Matthew 25, it's what, we, it's what we do, and it's who we do it to. And as a family, if you're building a legacy, and you want a legacy to reverberate through the generations, as a family, we've all got to be thinking about who is it that we're loving and seeing, and who is it we're doing this to? And every family that's here at Gold Lake, I think you're going to do this because you want to have this legacy along the way, for your vertical faith to become horizontal. To become horizontal, that's when it becomes legitimate to Jesus. Theory becomes front line. You inhale Jesus and you exhale His love out to the least. Let me finish with this. We're almost done. Three minutes. Let's talk about the goats. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is really, really harsh language. And I think, again, I don't know all all the things that are behind this, but God is trying to describe a separation that is painful. And it's the separation that is way more important than the, that is the description. But I want you to read this. Because I remember there were moments when I read this and I, I felt like weeping. He said, I was hungry. And you gave me nothing. I was thirsty. And you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. I needed clothes. You did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You didn't look after me. And they're just as confused as the sheep. They're like, Lord, when did, when did this happen? Because we don't ever remember seeing, seeing you. He says, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So here this morning, on June 20th, on the first day of my dad's next hundreds, hundred years in eternity, I want you to ask this question. What are you going to do? To see Jesus, and what are you not gonna do? As a family, as an individual. I don't think there could be anything more interesting because here's, here's how I want you to think about this. I did not realize in 1968 what Jesus Christ was gonna do in my life. The Graham. Yeah, this is what now is when I kill you. Come on. So come on back up. So in 1968. So I want you to look at me now. I'm 53 years older than you. The story I'm describing is 53 years. Someday you'll be hanging around and go, hey, I heard Steve Andrews' 100th birthday. You'll, no, I don't. But here's what I want you to know. I lived that year. It was a very frustrating year. Went to Rift Valley Academy. I saw mission, saw missionary kids who were there because their parents were called who didn't love Jesus. They didn't love the African people. And I remember thinking, what the heck is going on? But I was starting to see. I was starting to see things. I also started to see that missionaries weren't releasing the leadership to the indigenous, to the peoples of the country. Like the missionaries were holding on to their authority instead of training and discipling and handing it off to the generation of the people they were called to reach. And I'm 12 years old. What do I know? Nobody's listening to me. It drove me crazy. I came back to America and I said, if I ever get a chance to serve in Africa again, I'll only do it under indigenous leadership, under the, under the African people. So, I'm 12 in 1968, 1974, I'm 18, I'm a freshman in college. I start praying for the Pocot. This is the part I want you to remember, okay? You're the only person who's going to remember this story and wish you didn't. In 1985, after seven years of youth ministry in Detroit, I went to Chicago to trinity seminary i want you to think about this since 1974 i've been praying for the pokot tribe in northwest kenya i'd never met a pokot i walked into my first seminary class and i sat down next to this big huge guy with a huge afro literally this this big from my vantage point now super sweet and i said i said hey man how you doing And this is exactly what he did. He looked at me and he goes, hello, hello. I'm like, I said, you're from Kenya. He's like, yeah. I said, I recognize that accent anywhere. He says, how do you know that? So I I, I was a a missionary kid there 20, you know, 17 years ago. And I said, what tribal group are you part of? What do you think he said? Pokot! Guys, this is what I found out. Of a million Pocot, as far as we know, he was the first Pocot. This is my my story of journey with God. He was the first Pocot to ever study the Bible or theology, and as far as I know, the first Pocot to ever come to America as a student in the history of the world. And out of 350 million people, after 11 years of praying for him every day, I sit down in the chair... Next to him. Are you kidding me? Guys, you, you may be an atheist and not believe in God. I, I just want to say to you, whatever. Whatever. Because God put me down next to the only pocot in the United States of America. We ended up having lunch together every day for two years. He was the only friend I made in seminary. But when he went back, I didn't go with him, and I forgot about it. We lost contact for 15 years, even though I'd prayed for him all these years. We went back to plant churches, had a terrible time, terrible. they are the worst living conditions in the planet. And here's what I want you to know. In 2003, through a miracle of a friend who met him, reconnected us. And all this time, I'd had this bird from 1968. What are you going to do? 1968, 1978, 88. You know, two th- you know, all of a sudden, it's 2003. It's been... How long has that been? 35 years. And I hadn't done squat about what am I going to do about the people of Africa? And in 2003, I go and visit him. You can go sit down because now I want to tell you what happened. Oh, wait, come back. You got to dance with me. So on the last visit, the last travel group with the Pokot, we went to the worst part of Pokot. Gosh, I almost forgot this. And like 300 people, all the churches were meeting under, under the thorn trees. No, no churches that time. And the about 100 no at that time no one wore western clothing and it was about 110 degrees most days no no one people just wore the most minimal clothing whatever so people were basically nude and so the women started dancing and they started singing this song and i'm a little uncomfortable all these women dancing they're and they're, they're, they're jumping come on come on come on big guy let me see let me see your vertical let me see what you got can you jump like a maasai or a pokot come on let's see come on let's see No, you're definitely not, Pocot. And they're jumping. And I mean, they're clearing. And they're, I mean, just effortlessly, you know, 24 to 36 inches. They're just effortlessly clearing. And I'm about a two-inch vertical. But they they bring me out to start singing with them. And they were singing, bring us Jesus, bring us life, uh, bring bring us water, bring us life. That's what they were singing. And we're having a great time. And I actually have video proof of my incredible dancing skills. But here's what I want you to know, and I want you to remember. Even that day, 35 years later, I was incredibly discouraged because I thought a million people need clean water. They're scattered all over this country. I have no money. I don't have any power. I I don't have that much leverage in the world. But I do have a church I've started. Maybe we can do something about it. And so I went home. This is what I want to finish with. That was 18 years ago. People in my life started seeing the Pocot. We started taking teams over. People started seeing it. People started caring about it along the way. People started saying, well, what are you going to do about water? We had five women who said, how come nobody, er, how come nobody ever asked a question about the Pocot women? Because their conditions are horrific. Five of our women said, we're going we're to start serving the women of Northwest Kenya. I'd been there for years, never thought once about the women because I have a problem with seeing. But those women came and they saw the women. Anyway, today, because of people catching the vision of seeing 400,000 of those million Pocot drink clean water and are living because people gave, people saw. People started churches, 400 churches. There's schools everywhere, medical clinics. There's anti-FGM training, which is unbelievable. All this stuff happened because I came back powerless but, but people were willing to say, people were willing to say what I'm asking you to ask today. That's only simple. Lord, what do you want me to see? Like, it doesn't matter if nobody in this room listens to me today. If you listen, you took good notes. You're my favorite. That's my favorite right here. But you're thinking and you're going to ask the question, Lord, what do you want? What do you want me to see that maybe nobody else is seeing? That's, it only takes one person. And then one other person sees with them and one other person catches the vision and catches the flow. $15 million later, hundreds of wells, uh, probably 100 schools, 400 churches, simply because God said, will you see? And so here's what I want to say to you in closing. 50 years from today, I want you to remember this because God wants you to see something. I don't know what it is, but he wants you to see him in this world and that you would be, by the power of the Holy Spirit, His answer to whatever that is that you're seeing. Okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you for Graham and for all the men and women and boys and girls in this room. Thank you that you want us to understand that seeing is doing. To really see, and and sometimes it doesn't come right away. We don't know quite how to step onto that or act on that. But Lord, would you move in Graham? Would you move in this incredible young man right here, all the young men and women that are listening to this to say, what are you calling? in these families, these amazing families, Lord. What are you calling each one of them to do? Guide them and direct them. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you do something far beyond, immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.